Welcome to the Coaching in Clubland podcast. My name is Mitch Johnston and I'll be your host. Coaching in Clubland is an Aussie podcast designed for current and aspiring coaches from all levels and across a range of sports to share their experiences about the caper. We discuss the roller coaster that is the coaching experience, the highs, the lows, the joys and the pitfalls. I caught the coaching bug as a teenager and have been fortunate enough to hold various coaching roles within cricket and footy clubs over the last 15 years. Through these experiences and my interactions as a player, I've come across many great and some not so great coaches in Clubland. We'll aim to keep things simple, practical and relatable so that you can apply these insights to your own coaching experiences. Sit back, grab a cuppa and please enjoy the episode. In this episode of Coaching in Clubland, we speak to Matthew Lloyd. A man who needs little introduction, Matthew Lloyd is an Australian Football Hall of Fame member. As a sharp shooting full forward, Matthew kicked 926 goals from 270 games with the Essendon Football Club from 1995 to 2009. A member of the Bombers Premiership team in the year 2000, a three-time Coleman medalist, five-time All-Australian and a staggering 12-time Essendon leading goal kicker, Matthew also captained the Bombers from 2006 to 2009. Since his retirement in 2009, Matthew has poured most of his energy into his media commitments, where he's on Channel 9's Footy Classified and the Sunday Footy Show, as well as on radio with 3AW. Despite his busy media commitments, Matthew has had a long-standing association with Halebury College in a coaching role, has worked closely with Generation Next in the AFL Academy, and also has fulfilled part-time forwards and goal-kicking coaching roles with his beloved Bombers. In our chat with Matthew, we talk about the impact of Kevin Sheedy on his own playing career, the fundamentals of effective goal kicking, and just how impressed he was with the Bombers' growth in season 2021. This episode is proudly brought to you by Big Dog Clothing. For high-quality sports apparel and lifestyle clothing, visit www.bigdog.com.au to view their range. That's dog with a double G. And for listeners who follow both Big Dog Clothing and our podcast on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, if you share a post, story, or retweet a podcast episode, you'll go into the running for a weekly $30 voucher. Entries close Tuesday, 5 p.m. each week. Okay, legends, let's get stuck into the episode. Welcome to the Coaching Clubland podcast, Matthew Lloyd. Thanks, Mitch. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on, Matthew. I know it's a busy time in the AFL industry at the moment with the trade period. I guess the reason we've got you on is to give us some different perspectives, both as a player, also in your time in the media, but you've also had a pretty significant involvement in the coaching space too. So it's brilliant to have you on today. And uh, we've just come off the back of a remarkable grand final between Melbourne and the Western Bulldogs. What did you make of the game and how do you assess the coaching performance of both Simon Goodwin and Luke Beveridge? And by extension, could Luke have done anything more to stem the, the flow of Melbourne's momentum at one stage there? Yeah, I think they coached really well right throughout the year and to get their team to grand final. Melbourne were just rock solid all year and you could just sense from a coaching point of view that everyone knew what they were uh, asked to do. And, and uh, you heard right throughout the preseason that it was about becoming more about the team. We've got a lot of talented individuals, but we don't gel well enough as a team. So you know, I'm fascinated by a lot of that you know, with Christian Petrarca and Clayton Oliver being challenged more to defend strongly, bring their teammates into the game a little bit more. I look at Patrick Cripps. He's probably needs to be told that, I reckon, right now. He tries to do too much and teammates can lose faith in themselves and teammates could that. So I love what Goodwin did and uh, the way the team defended for their lives and that starts from the forwards, midfielders defending to allow for Lever and May to play the way they did. So I love that. The way they, they could come back from deficit, real belief in yeah. their system. Uh, and then with the Western Bulldogs, I think Luke Beveridge, yeah, just their midfield, the thing I'll say is that midfield, they got exposed in an area where Melbourne were exposing a lot of midfields. They got done out the back of the stoppage countless times. 
and I would have to say, yeah, it went on for far too long to a point where the game was blown open in 15 minutes. So the players on the field had to adjust better than they did to stop that run on. Almost like bees to a honeypot, some of the Bulldogs mids. Yeah. And just uh, the system mm. came through for the for the Demons there. But it's been 21 years since you yourself played in premiership with statistically the greatest team of all time with the Bombers there in, in the year 2000. What, what are some of your recollections of this season and the leadership that was on display and I guess you being at the forefront? Just what made this team tick during that uh, sensational year? Well, it started uh, with some heartbreak, obviously, in 1999 where we, we finished on top and we failed in the final series. So there was unfinished business there. I was a bit shocked, though, looking back that we finished on top. Well, we, we, we lost uh, James Hurd, we lost Scott Lucas, Longy had injuries, and, and somehow we just had a group that grew together and we finished on top. We probably weren't ready. We probably came a bit too quickly for us. And then, but by the start of 2000, yeah, you know, uh, we got a new fitness coach in who was just brutal on our fitness. And um, so we were extremely fit, uh, extremely strong, had a ruthless edge to ourselves uh, in terms of, I always talk about there's no soft teams win premierships. You have to be really, really tough mentally and physically. And that's what we had. We had a, an uncompromising back line, a super deep midfield, and then a forward line, which um, on any given day, myself, Lucas, Heard, McCurry, Carousella, we could finish off you know, on any given day. One of us yeah. would rip apart an opposition. So it was yeah. pretty nice running down the race with that sort of side. Dean Solomon and Rob Shaw have spoken about John Quinn's involvement in, in the fitness mm. side of things and really ramping that up for the, the group there. I'm a Carlton supporter, so that 99 prelim, uh, the Fraser yeah. Brown tackle, I'm, you know, really good childhood memory, of course. But is there a sense of uh, unfulfillment? You know, that, that team was so dominant for that three-year period and we know the Lions started their dynasty then. How do, how do you reflect back on that time with, you know, nabbing one premiership from, from those three seasons there? Yeah, it does hurt. I know how hard they are to win, so I'm grateful for one. But, uh, yeah, we were, we had a good enough list to be better than that. Like, it should have been two. 99, I'm not saying we would have beaten North Melbourne uh, on the day. It would have been a great game of football. And then 2001, they were a juggernaut on the rise, Brisbane. But we had our chances. So we were 14 points or so up at half time. Well, I reckon we had seven or eight of the inside 50s to start the third quarter. They were there for the taking. We didn't take our opportunities. And then Brisbane overran us. We took in a few injured players. So that's another aspect of coaching. Mm. James Hurd and Mark McCurry went in underdone and we, we ran out of legs. So we need to put them away. We need to put more of a gap on them. And we didn't take the momentum when we had it. So, yeah, it still hurts. 20, 20 years on, it still hurts. But uh, I've got one premiership to show for it. More than most still. I think, uh, yeah, they're, they're mm. tough to get, as we know. And you played under Kevin Sheedy for the majority of your career, who we know is an absolute uh, master coach. Just looking back on Sheeds and, and his philosophies and, and method, what were some of his uh, strengths? What were some of the things that made him so successful and have that longevity in the game? I think his strengths was his ability to um, give opportunity. I'd never played full forward in my life, but somehow we identified that I was going to be the next full forward of the club. Yeah, from early sessions of watching me train and play, he said, okay, I, I view you as a full forward. And as I said, I'd never played anywhere but half forward, ruck, half back as a junior. Uh, he had a great ability to never sugarcoat what he needed to tell you, but made you feel very good by the end of the conversation that you could put that plan into action and be the best player on the ground the next week. So... That's where the next coach I had and uh, was Nida. He, he didn't do that for me. He he made me. I, I lost confidence. Rashid 
even though he was hard on me, he he always had me feel great about myself. And that that was his ability to work with the minds of the players. He, he was ahead of his time as a mind coach uh, as well as a football coach. And even that relationship aspect where Sheeds was, I think, giving you some advice around even property investment, those things, really looking yeah. after you as a person, not just the football. I think that's so mm. important for, for coaching as well, isn't it? Well, the career I'm in now, like the media career, like he, he was all for it. He goes, hey, if that's what you want to do after footy, go for it. Go for it. Yeah, you know, spread your wings now. You know, while you get people want it, you know, kicking goals, go and do it. Mm. Whereas, you know, Dennis Pagan or someone else would have said, you know, don't go down Media Street, son, or whatever. So, <laughs> so he was really supportive. He was really, really supportive of me and uh, always challenging me. Okay, what are you doing off field? How's your parents going? How's your relationship going? He was forever asking about me, the person, uh, which is critical as a coach. It continues to be a recurring theme, relationships with all the coaches we've spoken to. And uh, you, you touched on Matthew Knight's Kevin's successor and I guess the inability for you guys perhaps to see eye to eye. And the, the dynamic there is interesting because you were the captain at the time as well. So as a player in the twilight of your career at that time, what were you looking for from Matthew? What did he need to do in terms of treating you a little bit differently as an experienced player of the group? Um, no, I just wanted to feel valued, really. Um, valued that he valued me strongly as part of the team. And I've probably seen a lot of the demise of a lot of my teammates who were older players who you could just see a, a broom was coming through. And it was a, he was going to, yeah, the sheety era was over and he was going to create his own. And yeah. anyone maybe who'd been part of that era felt a bit vulnerable. And there's nothing worse as a sportsman or in any word feeling vulnerable. You've got to feel on edge. It's great to be on edge as a sportsman, but vulnerable for your position isn't great, I don't think. Um, and, and that's probably where I always felt nervous about where I stood uh, and did I have the full backing and, or am I the next one and gone for a, a younger injection of youth? So, yeah, so that, that was probably probably the biggest issue I had. We always respected each other and uh, in terms of, you know, pub, you know, we never had spats in front of people or anything yeah. like that, but it was a challenging time. And you're not always going to click with a coach as well. Sometimes there's just no. different difference of philosophy there mm. and, uh, and style. So we saw many champions of your era, and, you know, Michael Voss, Nathan Buckley and James Hurdle turn their energies into coaching, perhaps after pretty short apprenticeships there as well. So we've seen that shift considerably with the likes of Chris Fagan, David Noble, and even Vossi himself re-entering the fray. Just how important is it for coaches, no matter what their playing background, to have a, a decent apprenticeship to set themselves up for a successful coaching career? Oh, absolutely critical uh, because as, as a player, yeah, you, you sort of concern, you, you're looking after yourself, really, get yourself right, and then yeah, you, you form part of a six or seven-man forward line and, and you gel with your teammates. As, as a coach, you've got 40-odd 40, 40 players, all your assistants, your development staff, medical teams, fitness teams, dealing with the media, dealing with the sponsors. Yeah, you're managing over 100 people, really, and, and you're the leader of that. And so yeah, there's, and there's 18 coaches, there's 800 footballers. Mm. So the scrutiny goes through the roof. And, and you even hear Simon Goodwin and Damien Harbick, yeah, they've spoken about how they changed as people and they've had to get mentors and people away to try and bring them back to why they fell in love with the game. And, and that. But it's tough to be in love with the game when you're losing. It's easier <laughs> when you're winning. So, um, so yeah, it's a real challenge. That's why you need that experience, yeah, in coaching. And I know personally I've been involved at Halebury for, yeah, nearly nine or ten years, and but this was, was this year was the first year I've coached in my own right. Yeah, and 
being in that the chair, the number one chair, I learned so much. I've learned so many things that I can do better next year with reacting quicker on game days and how it handles situations during the week. So, yeah, it's like anything. You need an apprenticeship doing anything. We had Grant Thomas talk about the delineation between being a head coach and assistant coach, and they're, they're very different skill sets in, in many regards. And you mentioned your role at Halebury there, and I guess many of the boys would be involved in NAB league programs or just their local footy clubs as well. How do you balance giving those young blokes instruction and feedback, but also not overcrowding them? Because there's a lot of advice they're getting at, you know, at this point in time. How do you keep things simple for them? Yeah, well, we have um, guidelines, and um, it's about yeah, having having a game style, but not overwhelming them at, at that age. To that uh, they're concerned about, okay, where do I need to be? I, I want them to play on instinct, yeah, but have have guidelines. But and, and you're I'm also conscious, as you said, that they are in NAB League programs where yeah, they're being asked to do different things. But we have a great relationship with the NAB League program that you know, while they're playing for them, if they're playing for them on that weekend, they take priority. If they're playing for Halebury that weekend, we take priority. Yeah. And the boys are really, really good at switching on and off to what I might ask for compared to what their NAB right. League coach may ask for. Um, so, yeah, and as I said, the, the, as we said, such the environment you create is critical in that. And well, I want them to go, oh, I'm wrapped to be back at Halebury. I, I love playing here and, and the passion for the school jumper. So that, that's something that... Um, yeah, I've absolutely loved about coaching. But, but yeah, we have a good relationship with the NAB League Club. In the last two years, for, for kids in year 10, 11, 12, would have been really, really tricky. How have you tried to stay connected with your, with your group there? And what are some things you guys have done to, to remain in contact? Uh, even Thursday night uh, of grand final week, um, just yeah, Zoom's become sort of my best friend in a sense <laughs> with keep staying connected. And Basha Hawley, a former teammate of mine, thought, who, who, I'd just love to put on a, a finals night for the boys. And, who, who, who's a great finals player. I thought, obviously, of Basher, who was a former teammate of mine. And, yeah, rang Basher, and we just had an unbelievable night of talking about finals and what they've seen through the final series so far, what's important in finals, what makes uh, a grand finalist, what makes a premiership team, and spoke to Basher about, about what how Richmond went from a probably a team of individuals, a selfishness, to a, a group of, yeah, of of a united front who won three premierships. So, uh, yeah, that, that was unbelievable. And we just, we just picked parts out of other other teams and other individuals, and we're constantly talking about that. So uh, kids will send me messages going, oh, I, I took this out, and I'll challenge, okay, how can you bring that into your game? How can we bring that into our team? So, yeah, just for forever staying engaged with each other, uh, even though it's not physical, but mental is just as important, yeah. No, no doubt. And I've got Basher Hawley's autobiography sitting on my bedside yeah. table there. Looking forward to getting stuck in that. I think he's an absolute mm. champion of the game and a bit of a loss to footy. Hopefully he stays connected in, in some way. Mm. We're very fortunate to have Ferox Cricket as a sponsor of the podcast. An ICC endorsed and preferred brand of both international players and cricketers in clubland alike, Ferox Cricket supplies elite quality cricket gear at affordable prices. Contact Kane and the Ferox team on Facebook or Instagram. Alrighty, let's get back to the episode. One thing that hasn't improved a great deal over, I guess, the history of the game is kicking for goal. And I know that was a real specialty of yours. Hmm. In your mind, what are some non-negotiables when kicking for goal that you would like to see implemented more consistently from, from the modern play? We see lots of, you know, snapping, kicking around the corner from dead in front. What, what are your thoughts on, I guess, a more uh, consistent or effective approach to goal kicking? I'm ruthless on a couple of things at Halebury. Um, so when, when we say, okay, guys, the next seven minutes is goal kicking, 
So the first thing kids want to do is go to the boundary line. So they want to go just where in front of the the race and start practicing snaps and bananas. They'll go and have a kick with no man on the mark. I'll just blow my whistle. I'll go, why are you lot over on the boundary line? What percentage is that kick you reckon? I'll go one out of 10. Why are you practicing a one out of 10 for? Mm. Get in the V and nail the shots you need to. So the eight, nine out of tenners. Just focus on that. If you kick one over there, it's a bonus for me on the weekend. Get your ones in front. right. So I'm brutal on just practicing the shots you should kick. And if you haven't got a man on the mark, don't even bother kicking because it's a different kick without a man on the mark. So I'm really strong on those basics. And then then it's different horses for courses with each individual that I'll work with on their specific technique. But momentum through the ball, having your mind right, following through where your shoulders are, where your hips are coming through. You know, keep it simple. Don't invent issues. He said, Buddy Franklin had an arc. He was inventing problems for himself. So that you don't need to invent. So he improved greatly as time went on. So yeah, just the basic fundamentals and just the common sense approach to goal kicking that uh, isn't isn't common no. uh, often. No, yeah. as, as I mentioned, I'm a Carlton supporter. And when I see Harry Mackay line up for goal, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm cringing a bit, to be honest. He, he's... <laughs> He's uh, very hit and miss, and uh, there's a few. Even when he's kicking a drop punt, kicking through the footy, he's, he leans back on them. There's, there's a few technical issues mm. there that you'd think uh, it would be addressed, but that's it's an interesting conversation around goal kicking and by extension forward craft. We see that you know the games changed a lot in the last twenty years in particular. Do you think that the modern forward possesses enough understanding of leading patterns and the, and the like, and or is this just sort of stymied by the defensive structures and mechanisms that coaches are putting into place these days? Aaron, we're seeing more forward craft come back a little bit. You know, with yeah, with six 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 at the centre bounce, and say like Bailey Fritz kicked six in a grand final, and it was forward craft. Like some of his leading patterns, and it looks like he's doing it easy uh, as he leads into it. But that's forward craft. He has a uh, brilliant timing. I speak to boys around. You got to know when the player wants to release the footy. So often, yeah. if he's about to take a bounce, why why are you leading for? Like what you should be. Working, working, running figure eight, but not taking yep. your space away. The moment you say the, see the player raise his eyes, that means he wants to kick the ball to mm. you. Mm. If he's about to take a, take a bounce, don't know why you're leading up because he's not ready for you yet. So they're all things yep. that I've obviously learned over 20 years. At, you know, I, was, I was fortunate enough to work with Mark Harvey, Terry Danaher. Uh, not all natural forwards, but they, I bounced a lot of ideas off them. I watched a lot of tape of Kerry, Chris Grant, these players when I was growing up. So that was something that was big for me. But yeah, no, no, like if you haven't got forward craft, you're in massive, massive trouble. And sometimes you just have to bring the ball to ground and bang and crash packs and nothing worse than blokes to get out marked uh, when they could be stronger. So yeah, when you have to go to just bring it to ground, do it. When you double team, bring it to ground. But when you get your time in a one-on-one, that's when the craft comes into it. No, definitely. I guess the Bombers were interesting this year as well. They probably snuck under the radar a little bit and did a, an amazing job, really. Ben Rutten, his first year as the, as the lone sort of coach. Were you pleasantly surprised just how quickly the Bombers have progressed? And in your opinion and from afar, what, what appear to be Rutten's strengths as a coach? I think he's made an unbelievable uh, effort to um, re-engage with the past and the history of the club. Like, I think that they moved to Tullamarine, to the hangar, while it's a great facility, doesn't have the history of what Windy Hill does. So he's had the boys back training there. 
uh, over the whole off season, one maybe one session a week, and and that's sort of a bit of a sheedyism what he was doing. He sheedy was big on your history and being proud of what the club stood for, and Essendon had lost that a fair bit. So I think that he's re-engaged a lot. Like I I got a massive handwritten letter from him saying, you know, will you present the Matthew Lloyd Dolking Award at the best and fairest? I want the people to know what you've done and, and all. So he just made a massive effort. And I think that's the little things I see, but within the club, his relationship building has been strong and they all know what's asked for them from a role and a game plan perspective. So yeah, he's made a fantastic start. They surprised a lot. The next challenge is going to be that everyone knows what they're capable of. Like we saw Brett Ratton have a great start, yeah. not so much this year. So that, that's their challenge. Was there anything specific with game plan? We know that some of the kids probably progressed a little bit quicker than we than we thought. But was there anything from a game plan perspective that you really saw develop over the last twelve months? I think that under John Worsfold, they were yeah, they looked good when they had the footy, but when they turned it over, they were just caught napping badly. Like opened yeah. up, but they just have a real there's a confidence now in in what they do, and that that yeah they. They defend the ground better when they lose possession. So they've still got that ability to take the game on, but there's a balance to it. So if you're not involved in the play, there's blokes back setting up behind the ball. I thought the midfield group had a real amazing chemistry. Uh, once Parrish found his way, Parrish, Merritt, Stringer. Yeah, and then I thought the back line defended extremely well as a team and as individuals. So I think they improved in so many different areas. But it was sort of, uh, yeah, the balance between attack and defence. Uh, was much, much better this year. And you've been in the media for, for 12 years, almost as long as the duration of your playing career, so that's gone mm. really quickly. So I'm looking at the best sort of operators in the media from a coaching point of view. Do, do coaches give the media enough other than the cliches? or And, and who are some of the, the better coaches you've seen in handling the pressure and the spotlight of the media? Yeah, uh, I think that uh, I love interviewing coaches. They're my favourite interviews. So that I must say that there's another thing. They just have a respect about them. Yeah, some, some give more than others, but I, I love chatting to Ken Hinckley before a game, just his passion, the emotion that he exudes. And yeah, they failed in a prelim, but uh, he's one coach that uh, I really like and would want to play for. You just you just see the passion exudes out of him. Um, yeah, I think um, Clarkson, you, you just obviously tell uh, he's a bit of a genius in, in terms of the way he plays, he coaches and the way he teaches the coach. But yeah, I was a teammate of Damien Hardwick's and... Um, yeah, I think his ability to be a player's man, but also demand a lot of them and how they need to play for him. Yeah, I think he's he's become obviously the best coach in it uh, over the past three or four years. And that AFL doco released earlier this year, he was incredible. That insight with Damien just addressing yeah. his group. He had the, the boys eating out of the palm of his hand, I thought. Yeah. And just in closing, Matthew, what's your assessment of the, the current state of the game? We know that 666 seems to have made an improvement. The standing the mark rule made a a bit of a quick injection of, of quick ball movement too, but and and by extension, what responsibility do coaches have in maintaining the spectacle of the game as well? You know, I love my job, but over previous years, it's been really hard. Uh, some games with the, the more rolling walls and you know, stoppages and tackles. It's just whereas I love this year. I know the stats will say scoring didn't go up or whatever, but I really enjoyed it. Like I thought the ball flowed more. You know, we saw you know a few more forwards you know, kicking bags. Yeah, and I don't know, some hate the stand rule. Uh, I, I think it's been fine. So, yeah, I, I enjoy, I really enjoyed this year of football more so than the previous three, four, five. So, 
Yeah, I think we're seeing Melbourne have an ability to limit the opposition score, but score heavily themselves. So uh, in the past, it might have been that you need to defend first uh, and, and keep teams under 80 points or whatever like that. So I think that yeah, seeing what Melbourne have done and how destructive they are, well, now hopefully teams watch that and see that again, like Richmond, a um, good, good scoring team who can defend. So, yeah, I enjoyed the game. And coaches. Coaches, it's a tricky question, that, because you lose your job if you're not winning games. Yeah. So I think they have to have a belief in what they, how they want to coach and go for it because there's no point kicking 15 goals and the opposition kicks 20 and you lose because you're eventually going to lose your job. you just got to do it your way, I think. I think David Teague, that might have been the beginning of the end when he mentioned he yeah. was going to try and outscore the opposition no matter That's what. Right. So, yeah. no, very true. Matthew, you've been incredibly generous with your time. It's a, it's a really busy period for you with uh, with the trade period at the moment. So really appreciate your time. You've, you've been an incredible player. Your, your media stuff we really enjoy. Really appreciate you giving up your time and uh, take care. Thanks, Mitch. I really enjoyed this chat. Thanks, Matthew. Hey, everyone in Clubland. As per the last few weeks, if you give the podcast a bit of love, I'll be giving you a shout out each week. James Downing, a health and PE teacher from Swan Hill College, tweeted that Paddy Upton's episode went beyond coaching and that the athlete-centered coaching model can be applied to a teaching context as well. James is the winner of last week's $30 Big Dog Voucher. Cheers, James. A very good friend of mine and resident psychologist with the Essendon Cricket Club in Shane Puxley also tweeted that he'd not heard anyone link character and performance so closely before in relation to Paddy Upton's episode. And a reminder for listeners who follow both Big Dog Clothing and our podcast on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, should you share a post, story, or retweet a podcast episode, you'll go into the running for a weekly $30 voucher. Entries close Tuesday, 5 p.m. each week. As always, look after yourselves and stay tuned for plenty of great coaches in the weeks ahead. Thanks for listening to this episode of Coaching Clubland. A shout out to the talented Aidan Arandes for putting together our podcast theme song. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to hear more, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Feel free to leave a rating and review. To catch the latest updates from the podcast, check us out on Facebook or on Twitter at Coaching Club Pod. Thanks again and catch you around in Clubland.